Psalm 65. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hears prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose to bring near, to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Amen. Well, I preach uh, in a lot of places, so it's hard to keep track of what stories I told where. Forgive me if I told this one here. Um, I was on a flight to San Francisco once, sitting by an empty seat and then uh, someone by the window. And we started a casual conversation. Neither of us were super eager to talk. But she asked me what I did. And, uh, you know, pastors don't usually like that question because we just, we just don't. I'll, I'll tell you afterwards if you really want to know all the reasons. But I told her I was a pastor. And she said, really? What, what kind of pastoring do you do? And I said, well, I start churches, help people start new churches. And she looked right at me and she said, too bad for you. That's a dying industry. Okay, here we are on our way to San Francisco. And uh, so we spoke for a fair bit of time on the way down there. I was, uh, I was not able to convince her that she wasn't going to get rid of the North American church so easy, but I did remind her or let her know that we live in the most explosive growth of the church in human history, by far outstretching anything that's ever happened in the story of the gospel in the world. So she left, uh, maybe not quite as happy as when she first told me that my, my job was useless. Um, but I, you know, I, when I think of her, we'll, I pray for her. But, but what really struck me about that is she um, expressed outwardly what so many of the church, ourselves in North America, feel like. That, that the gospel in North America... Uh, really often the gospel in the world is um, on the decline. Well, you know, if you look at some numbers, that's true. The gospel in North America is, uh, well, we're not, we're not in a triumphant season of American Christianity. That's certainly true. But we're always to be in a hopeful season. We're never to think the church has been uh, outmaneuvered or outgunned by its enemies. That's, that's never been true. You know, uh, 10 years or 15 years before uh, Constantine uh, became converted, they were 
taking all the church buildings from the people in Rome. So we're never in that situation. And that's what I'm really talking about today with the title of this message, that your church is too small. I don't mean it's too small. I mean, we would love, wouldn't we love to see all these seats filled? Of course we would. But that's not what I mean. It's like, it's what I'm getting at is our, our vision, your vision, my vision, our hope, our expectation, our church is too small. I want a church, and I think the Lord wants one that's big enough for worship and life, for uh, sin and grace, for hunger and feasting, and for both the church and the world. And that's what we're going to find in these passages. So let's take a look first at uh, a church that's big enough for worship and life. I love this first phrase. It's, uh, it's an interesting Hebrew construction. I was sort of glad that Phil Long wasn't here because I was going to start by talking about Hebrew. But um, I'll always love it when the Longs are here. I could have endured it because I checked it twice. But um, the word wait is uh, in the text. Uh, but it's well translated here, praise is do you. The idea is that the church is always ready to declare Hearts are always stirred, stirred to announce the glory of God. So that's how you're to come. So you should come here ready to do that. That's what it means. Um, that, that the church has reflected on, experienced, uh, accounted in their hearts the goodness of God and waits for God to call it to worship, to, to declare and honor him. It's an eager anticipation, an expectation of what God, uh, of the opportunity to tell God what he has done and to uh, delight in it. So the implications of that are that which leads up to worship should be a, a, a recollection and an accounting and a record of all the mercies that God has shown you. And if it's hard for you um, to list those mercies out, I, we're all in that position sometime, but it, it might well also be that, that you've become so accustomed to them that the abundant mercies of God have become um, expectations and things that we think that should just be there. Like for example, um, food, clothing, but also much greater and richer mercies. So the idea that, that we come into God's presence is should, sh the, the pump should be primed as it were, the heart should be moved and stirred and um, we should be ready to come. There should be praise waiting here for him, um, anticipating the beginning and the opportunity to together as a people uh, declare God's glory. But, but there's also something else here. There, there's, an, there's a significant implication. You know, as we said uh, that the gospel or the church should be uh, big enough for worship and for life. And that's what, what we want. Where, where do we see the life? Well, we've already seen that we're coming with a life that's loaded to and remembered and reflecting and cataloged God's mercies to us. But there's something else here. And to you, we shall, our vows shall be performed. This is a praise that's in the church. The Sunday, we could say, is bigger. The church is bigger than Sunday. Because not only have we brought our praise, but we're also, we're also done what we said we would do. That, that what happens and is said here um, informs and rules and um, empowers and directs the way we live when we leave here. You, you know, I don't know if Pastor David was clear about this, but, but you realize that we're, gonna, we're going through a whole service and throughout the whole service, 
sorry visitors if you're here and you didn't know this, you're making vows over and over again to God. All the way, this is a, a, a renewal of a covenant. And you're declaring that he's great and deserves all praise. You're, you're, you're acknowledging his, his forgiveness and pledging to obey. So every week is the cycle of us bringing God's glory to him and after we reflected on it and making pledges that his word is true, his glory is great, and we're called to live that through the week. So then we come back next week and our vows will be performed. What I'm trying to help us see from the beginning of the psalm, and by the way, we'll spend much more time in the first few verses than we will in the latter part of it. But what I want us to see is that, that the church is, is big enough for worship and for life, that there's an integration between what happens here. In, in fact, in significant ways, um, your life is, is an extension from an anticipation toward the liturgy of your Lord's Day worship. That's what we do. That's the cycle of the Christian life, that nothing that um, you're doing here should be disconnected to what you did yesterday or what you did tomorrow because this church is fully expressed in its most vivid and intensified manifestation when all God's people are together like they are now. But it doesn't disappear when, it's, when you guys all go back to your neighborhoods and your workplaces or in your community of friends that you're building up praise and you're fulfilling your vows that you made today. That's what it means for, um, for the church to be bigger than life and worship. A uh, number of years ago, we, we do a children's church through um, like toddler to kindergarten, I think. It, I mean, to, yeah, to, through kindergarten. So like preschool to kindergarten. And then after that, in first grade, the kids stay in our church. And I was talking to a mother. This is why I'm not the senior pastor anymore. Um, I, was, I was talking to a, a mother once who didn't want, it was really frankly frustrated that her six-year-old had to stay in worship. And she said, well, what in the world can a six-year-old learn from an hour and a half service? And I just blurted out, well, you could learn that something's bigger than he is. And then the next thing you know, I was an associate pastor. So I don't quite... <laughs> I'm not quite sure. They were very closely tied, I'm sure. But, uh, but you know, that's cute. And we're, we're, in our tradition, we love to say that kind of thing, you know, or, or we have that, have that view, I should say, about children in the covenant. But aren't we also, in our distractions and in our confusions and in our resentments, aren't we all here now, even the preacher, being reminded that something is bigger than me and bigger than you and bigger than all of us? And that's a lesson... Um, in my 60s now, I need to know as much as any six-year-old down at Trinity Church in Ballard today that, that the church is, is bigger or big enough for all of worship and all of life. Well, well now, though, we've, we've made some vows. And, and what happens to vow makers? What do vow makers become? They become vow breakers, right? <laughs> because raise your hand if you've kept all your vows. Yeah, I see no hands. For those of you, uh, for those of you on streaming, there are no hands here. So that's what David says um, when he reminds us that our, the church is bigger than, um, are big enough for, for grace 
and for sin. I love this next phrase. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for, listen to the change. Let's get all grammar oriented. When, when iniquities prevail against me, you forgive all our transgressions. Isn't that beautiful? There's this, there's this expression that David has that, that the, the world is too big for him, right? His own flesh is too big for him. And that's uh, part and parcel of our, of our life together. His uh, sins overcome him, just like your sins and my sins. Uh, this psalm was probably written uh, before, but certainly not in immediate consideration of his most grave sin uh, with Bathsheba, but he lost the fight to keep his vows. And so what we find is that this church is about uh, integrating a life uh, and liturgy together by anticipating and following through on that, but also it's built, absolutely built for the reality that you and I cannot keep our vows. Like if I were, for, forget the Ten Commandments, if I were just to ask you or your neighbor if you could come up with five rules by which to live, you would probably be able to do that. But then if I asked you if you could live by them for 30 days, you would not be able to do that. And that's the fundamental problem. So we need a church that's, that's big enough um, to call us to obedience and make vows and also big enough to be able to handle it when people like us don't fulfill their vows. And this beautiful interaction of the individual and the community um, is bound together in um, this parallel in David's psalm. When iniquities prevail against me, you forgive our transgressions. What is at the center? What is at the very center of um, the temple? What would David have seen in this temple that he went to? What's at the very heart of it? Well, what's at the very heart of the temple is the sacrifices. That he would have come, there would have been songs, there would have been prayers, but the entrance in and all the festivals and all the individual Israelites' offerings um, or, or temple worship, there would have been a reminder that atonement was to be made and ultimately a picture of the atonement that would be made. As we're told in Ephesians, and it's good to see this in the, in the call to worship, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight reflective of the first part of the psalm. And love he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely gave us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace, which God lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. This place is built for you to call you to obey make you earnestly seek and strive to obey, long to obey, hope to obey, wish you never sinned again, which is, an, which is the desire of the redeemed heart, to have never sinned again. The reality of the redeemed heart is what? That you will sin again. And God's made a church that's big enough for that. My brother-in-law is retired now, but showed insurance, but not like my car insurance, like, like to Archer Daniels Midland and stuff. Uh, he was at a, at a 
restaurant in London with other people that did that kind of thing. And they, uh, and they um, had this big restaurant, fancy meal in London. And then they played some kind of game I don't really understand, but the last person with a coin in their hand had to pay for the meal and he lost. So it was like 8,000 pounds. Butch is okay. I don't want you to worry about Butch. He's okay. <laughs> but but well, the reason I tell you that story is that that's not what happened to God when he called you in here and, and received your vows and then had to pay for the fact that you couldn't keep them. He did that with all wisdom and understanding and insight. He knew what all this would cost him. He wasn't surprised. There was no one else who was going to pay the tab for all of that. And that's how big the church is, and your neighbors need to know this. Now, the church is also big enough um, for all your hunger and thirst, all your desires, and all your feasting. Blessed is the one you choose to bring near to dwell in your courts. We should be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. In, in our particular niche in the church, uh, our particular tradition, we make much of all the things that I've said up to now. We're, we're very serious about the glory and transcendence of God and the fullness of obedience that a being of his majesty deserves from us. We, we take that very seriously if you're here exploring. That's a big thing for us because God is, of course, the biggest thing, the biggest being, the biggest of all. And then the desire to fulfill and do as he says is also run deeply into us, but we know we can't. So here's where really um, our one of our most characteristic delights is in what I was just talking to you about, the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness of Christ. Our problem, our church becomes too small when we forget what all that's supposed to do, why God did all that. God revealed his glory God called us to obey him. God forgave us when we didn't obey him. Those are just the preliminaries of the gospel. He did that so we could have supper with you. So you could feast here, which we will at the end of the service. He called us into his presence. He forgave us of our sins so that he could have fellowship with us and satisfy us with the goodness of his house, the holiness of his temple, which of course is his divine excellencies, that we can feast in the presence of God on the glory of God. The worship that we're in goes from call to confession, uh, our call to, to um, praise, to confession of sin, to instruction, and then where does it end? Where will this service find its consummation? except in the manifestation of the great delights of God. This is how big God's church is. He's not only about uh, getting you to do things right. Um, that would be a, a frustration on his part if that was his ultimate plan, although he will. But it's to draw you near to him. You should want to be satisfied with the riches of God. When our daughter is... 33 soon, was five, she looked at her, her cake at the kitchen counter. She was about three inches from gazing at this cake. And she said, Mom, can I have a lot more than I need? You, you um, there's so much more of God's delight that he would give you. But you and I, we gauge we gauge our appetite for God by 
by how much we feel hunger for him. And we have a lot of things to fill our hunger with. Well, we're not going to spend that much time on the next, uh, whatever they are, eight verses or so. I just want us to see, I will read them again so we can see what, how big this church is and what its full intent is. Um, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of the ends of the earth and the farthest sea, and the one who's by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves and the tumult of the people, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly and settle its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty and your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow and the hills gird themselves with joy and the meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Now up until right about verse five, this psalm is um, behaving itself and not imposing on anyone outside of the temple courts, or for that matter, the promised land. But um, David won't be satisfied with declaring God's glory. He won't just in the temple or just on Mount Zion or just in Jerusalem or only in the promised land. The language here is about the ends of the earth and the tumult of the peoples. And in David's vision of how grand this people of God is that he's redeeming, that will begin in Jerusalem, but it will fill the whole ends of the earth. The whole course of human life will be overcome The farthest seas will enjoy and know the glory of God. Take a look at this. Verse 6 speaks of God as creator. Verse 7 says he not only has created, but he governs the tumult of the seas and the storms. That's all the geopolitical, cultural disruption and spiritual conflict. Verse 8, I love, casually just assumes that everyone's going to delight Um, are in awe at the signs of God. That's the the great glory of the church. Even this little church, this humble body, look at you few people. You, You can never, if you understand how big the church is, be satisfied only with its blessings being contained and enjoyed here by you in your communion. That's never been the intent of the church. It's always been to make your neighbor's life a little better, to show love to the unlovely on your block or in your workplace. No, it's easy to look at the psalm and some have and, and said, 
Well, this psalm is really just a celebration, and actually it is a celebration of a bumper harvest crop in Israel. So we grant that. That's clear. Um, But it's much, much more than that, because the bumper crop implies two things. What will Israel do with the wealth that they've received from the land that year? And they will enjoy it, and they will use it for God's glory. And also... They will use it beyond the confines of God's people. The the church, and even the church in our age, in this place, in this congregation, the the church, when, when she's found herself to be most useful, is when she found herself to be most humbled and most concerned about the people around her. So um, I I don't know where Grace Mount Vernon is on the church humility scale. You seem like good folks to me. But but embrace your station. Embrace your place. Understand, though, that what's happening here is part of something that has global significance. And never tell yourself that your church is too small to make a difference in Mount Vernon and in the surrounding communities. Never convince yourself that what this place is here for is to give God worship together as a people, improve your lives, and have you feast on the grace of God. Of course it's here for those things. But, but even this place, even Trinity Church in Seattle, or the church that my wife and I planted in Indiana, New Life Presbyterian Church, all these humble little expressions of God's kingdom, we're, we're all here. We're all here for this, for this very, very reason. Let me close with this statement that Eustace made one of C.S. Lewis's great characters. In our world, he told Ramandu, this great being, in our world, a star is a ball of flaming gas. Because Ramandu's a, a, a star of sorts. And he looked at him and said, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. So, Is this right here? Is this the whole? Is this really what Grace Mount Vernon is? Well, it's what it's made of. Broken people like you and me that don't have a lot of time and don't have a lot of money and maybe have run out of ideas. But that's not what Grace Mount Vernon is. Grace Mount Vernon is part of God's church. And God's church overflows itself with the love of God. So don't wait for a pastor to do that. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies and I pray that you would um, encourage us all that we might um, know that the church is bigger than even our own needs, our own fears, our own dreams for it, that it's here for the world around
If that were not the case, then these ends of the earth that we're in here, Lord God, these were the peoples that David spoke of, so far away from Israel and yet so near to God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.